0: Hello. Before I get this episode underway, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who has listened to my podcast so far. It means a lot to me. I'd also like to ask you to leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, as this will hopefully help to get more listeners. If you'd like to join the Facebook page for the show, it can be found at facebook.com stillatlargepodcast large podcast. I've also started a Patreon page at patreon.com slash still at large podcast so if you'd like to support the podcast and to help keep the show coming i would be extremely grateful and we will give thanks to all the donors in the credits of future episodes but it's not compulsory and only donate if you can genuinely afford it once again many thanks to all the listeners and subscribers you make making the show worthwhile now on with the show still at large. Unsolved British Murders. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Series two, episode three. The Hammersmith Nude Murders, AKA Jack the Stripper. Part two, the suspects. By mid-February, 1965, the police in London were dealing with six young women who had been murdered in a short space of time. Two other women had been murdered in the years prior to this, and as February 1965 came to a close, they hadn't been connected, yet. At the head of the investigation was Chief Superintendent John DeRose, a seasoned detective approaching the end of his career, a career that had seen him involved with such infamous characters as John George Haig, the acid bath murderer. Over the course of his time in the police, He had developed a reputation for the rapidity with which he solved complex investigations. He had even earned himself the nickname of Four Day Johnny. The efficacy of his methodology has since been questioned, but none investigation has been questioned more than the investigation into the Hammersmith nudes, but we will return to that matter later. For now, at least, We will stay in 1965. There were a number of similarities with most of the women found. They had been asphyxiated by the application of either a ligature or manual strangulation. Possibly pressure expertly applied to the carotid artery. Another more salacious suggestion is that some of the women had been asphyxiated during the act of fellatio. How likely that is is unclear. Theoretically, if the member was large enough, maybe. Some of the women had had teeth removed, either during the life and death struggle or after they were dead. Some teeth had been found in the victim's throats or mouths, and at least one had had all but one of her teeth removed after death. Removing almost an entire set of teeth is not a job done in the heat of the moment. That takes time, dedication and a space where the murderer is unlikely to be disturbed. Some of the women were found sitting, propped against trees, walls or doors. Some had had their legs crossed or their arms placed in their laps. Nearly all of them were nude barring a single stocking, but there were variations in the places where the women were found. Two of them had drowned in the Thames after entering it following an assault that had rendered them unconscious, and one had been buried. Quite a varied method of disposal, four were on or near the Thames and four were further north in suburban and light industrial areas. Without being able to access the files further speculation is all we have to assume that there must be more evidence to link these murders. We do know that all of them were working in the sex trade with some of them having connections to organized crime or other criminal activity. Some of them had appeared in pornographic films Others had attended parties where well-connected and influential people had also been in attendance. Two of the victims had been found in close proximity to or on the Heron Trading Estate in Acton. Others showed signs of having been in an area where activities of a nature like those undertaken on the Heron Trading Estate. Throughout the investigation evidence had been found that some of the bodies had been stored in an electricity substation on the estate in Acton. Paint traces and the stage of decomposition pointed to the bodies being stored in a warm and dry yet light industrial environment. And the transformer room seemed to fit all of these requirements perfectly. Indeed, it was the paint flex on the last four victims that had prompted DCS John DeRose to focus his attention on one specific suspect although at the time, he did not name him. John DeRose had given a series of press conferences in which he said he had had a list of 20 suspects. Then in a subsequent press call, he said that the list had been whittled down to 10. And then in the final briefing, he said that his suspects numbered just three men. From the moment of the first press call, the killings had stopped. And in a later interview, after John DeRose had retired, He said the reason for the conferences were to frighten him and make him run. Eventually, DeRose stated, it had the effect we desired. This statement was supported by him saying that his chief suspect was so frightened he took his own life. Indeed, the man who John DeRose most suspected as the murderer, later identified by several authors and finally named in the book Jack of Jumps by David Seabrook as Mungo Island, had committed suicide by inhaling exhaust fumes in his lockup in Southwest London, the murder squad were preparing to make his arrest in march nineteen sixty five when news of Ireland's suicide reached them. This was, according to John DeRose in his nineteen seventy one autobiography "Murder was my business," was that Ireland had been unable to take the strain any longer Mungo Island was in his 40s, married with children. He had taken to using prostitutes when he served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War. He had been raised in Scotland with a puritanical and violent home life. Young Mungo would often be on the receiving end of beatings. As is often the case with children raised in violent homes, violence became a way of life, often fueled by alcohol, although that isn't necessarily true for everyone. Some rise above it. A period of stability came in the form of Mungo becoming a policeman. His career seems to have been relatively stable until he failed to obtain a promotion to become a detective, at which point he left the force and became a security guard, eventually winding up working on the Heron Trading Estate. As a security guard, he had had keys to the Transformer Room, the place where police suspected the bodies of some of the women had been stored prior to their disposal. His suicide note was according to John DeRose, all the evidence he needed to establish Ireland's guilt, although it is rather difficult to see the connection. It read, I can't stick it any longer. It may be my fault, but not all of it. I'm sorry Harry is a burden to you. Give my love to the kid. Farewell, Jock. P.S. To save you and the police looking for me, I'll be in the garage. What did he mean by... It may be my fault, but not all of it. Was this a claim that he had been responsible for only some of the killings? Or was it, as has been speculated, a confession to something other than the murders? It seems that his marriage had been through a very rough patch, and if he had returned to drink fueled domestic violence, which had resulted in his marriage beginning to fail, is this what he meant? That the failure wasn't just his fault, but that responsibility was also shared with his wife? Who exactly was Harry? It wasn't his child. Was it a friend who had somehow been a burden to the strained relationship? Was this a co-conspirator in the murders, if indeed he was responsible? At least one author believes so, but we'll return to Harry later. But the Harry mentioned in Mungo's suicide note is more than likely his brother, who was living with the couple at the time. The last line could have several meanings too. It could be read that he was about to flee and wanted the matter resolved as quickly as possible, or it could be that he wanted to alert his wife to the presence of his dead body and wanted to save her the distress of finding him, and save the police having to initiate a search for a missing person. The latter certainly seems to be the more likely, as it is not uncommon for suicides to make their living relatives aware of their demise in this way. There is another problem with Mungo Island being the person responsible. Although at the time of his demise, he was the security guard at the estate, it was a position that he had held for only a few weeks before the discovery of the final victim on the estate. If he had only been working there for a short period of time, how had he been able to store the bodies in the transformer room in the months before obtaining the keys? Even with this seeming discrepancy, Ireland remained the favoured unofficial suspect until a reporter from The Sun uncovered new information in 1972. Owen Summers conducted research into the killings and discovered that Mungo Island could not have been responsible for the murders as it was in Scotland at the time of Bridget O'Hara's murder. This was a massive revelation. But it was largely ignored at the time and it wasn't until author David Seabrook was conducting the research for his book Jack of Jumps that the revelation gained further traction Seabrook it seems had access to the police files that no one else had had his research also indicated that Mungo Island's admission of guilt could have been relation to a court hearing for a motoring offence he was due to attend court the morning he committed suicide that too would explain why he considered that the police might want to search for him, as failure to appear in court would have been a matter that would have certainly resulted in the police going to look for Mungo Island. Crucially, Island's car registration number was not among any of the numbers taken during the police surveillance. A cut-and-dried case of John DeRose incorrectly naming a suspect. His reputation would be preserved, his case closed with an innocent man firmly in the frame, It is not, however, that simple. DeRose had stated that there would be no more killings following Island's death, and he was right. The series of nude murders had stopped. Mungo Island's wife stayed silent on the matter and even moved away from the family home shortly after. This is not conclusive evidence, though. A fresh start away from the gossip surrounding her husband may have been her way to allow her and her children to heal from the unexpected loss of Mungo. His wife may well have decided against speaking out because of the generation she came from and that making a big fuss in the papers might have made an already difficult and distressing situation even worse. From today's perspective where making public declarations and denouncements in the media and on social media are commonplace it seems difficult to comprehend that she might simply have wanted the whole matter to go away as quickly as possible, and her seemingly taciturn silence was merely a way to achieve that. And so the question mark over Mungo Island's involvement still hangs in the air, albeit much less opaque than in 1965. From here onwards, the suspects become more speculative. Amongst these suspects are the famous, the infamous, the well-respected and the overlooked. Our next suspect is a famous character who had connections to the criminal gangs of London, appeared in several films, and ran his own nightclub before apparently committing suicide. I refer, of course, to Frederick Percival Freddie Mills. Freddie Mills was world light heavyweight champion from 1948 to 1950, although he had fought occasionally at heavyweight too. Mills wasn't a sophisticated boxer, More a relentlessly aggressive two-handed slugger who dominated his opponents with a barrage of blows. His ability to take punches also stood him in good stead. His good looks had propelled him to being the biggest boxing idol in post-war Britain. Mills' boxing career had begun in 1936 when, at the age of 16, he had won his first professional bout via a knockout in a fight staged in an ice rink. Freddie had, before that, been fighting in the popular fairground booths along the south coast of England. Whilst he was boxing, Mills was also serving in the RAF as a light entertainer, something which would serve him in good stead after his fighting career was over. In his post-fight years, he made a name for himself in the burgeoning world of TV light entertainment aimed at the emerging teen scene. In particular, he was a regular host on the pop music show, Six Five Special, and a couple of cameo appearances in two of the early Carry On films. For those listeners outside of the UK who might not be familiar with them, Carry On is a franchise of bawdy farces that relied on doublé entendre, smutty gags, slapstick, pratfalls and grotesque caricatures of contemporary stereotypes. They were, much like Mills' boxing style, not particularly sophisticated but they were wildly popular. His appearance in them only served to strengthen his public profile. Being well established as a public and now show business figure Mills ventured into the hospitality trade and opened the first Chinese restaurant in London. This too was wildly popular. So popular that imitators soon sprang up and Mills's restaurant immediately began to suffer having lost its unique selling point. Mills then made the decision to close the restaurant revamp the premises and relaunch as a nightclub. The irritatingly misspelled night spot, N-I-T-E, would be the death of Mills. As soon as it opened, it began to lose money. By this time, Mills was a fixture in the nightlife scene of London, and as can be expected, those twin psychopaths, former amateur boxers and all-round bad guys, the Cray twins, had become friends with the former world champion and celebrity. They enjoyed their celebrity connections, did the Krays? A prominent cast member of the Carry On films, busty blonde Barbara Windsor, best known for her diminutive stature, dazzling smile and cheeky giggle, was regularly photographed in their company. Freddy's night spot continued to lose money at an astounding rate. He was soon in debt, and in debt to, well, not exactly the local branch of Lloyd's or Barclay's. He had been borrowing money from his gangster connections. Quite whom had actually lent him money is unclear, as rumour has it that both the craze had been generous, shall we say, and because of his connections, via his restaurant, several Oriental gangs. It is, in particular, speculated that Freddie had borrowed money from the Triads. The Triads with their legendary ruthlessness, loyalty, and lack of humanity. Not wise to borrow from those, especially if your business isn't exactly flourishing. But that is what rumour has it. Mills's business was in trouble, his financial status was akin to that of the Titanic, and his mental health had been suffering due to the injuries he received in the boxing ring. So badly traumatised was his brain by the end of his career that towards the end of it, he had absolutely no recollection of one fight and had left the ringer unable to talk at the conclusion of another. He was also suffering from severe headaches and depression caused by both the injuries and the failure of his club. And it has been said that he had become sexually aggressive, violent even, at the point of orgasm. In the early hours of July 24th 1965, Freddie Mills was found dead in his car behind his club. It is reported that he had told staff that he was going for a nap in his car something that he did quite regularly. When he was discovered, it is reported that his hands were on his knees and his head was slumped forward. The weapon that had been used was a rifle Mills had borrowed from a friend who ran a fairground shooting range. When Mills had taken the weapon, it was not in a working state and it was apparent that Freddie had had the gun repaired for the purpose of taking his own life. At the inquest, it was ruled a suicide. Although the pathologist who carried out the post-mortem, Professor David Wingate had discovered that the bullet had entered through the right eye which had been open at the time of the gun being fired. This is unusual as suicides normally close their eyes and the position of the gun within the car is debated with some claiming that the weapon was beyond his grasp but the official statement was that he had fired the weapon. It's also interesting to note that Professor David Wingate was not called to give evidence at the inquest. How had Freddie Mills died? By gunshot, that's for sure, but by his own hand or someone else? There are rumours that Mills had paid the craze a thousand pounds to kill him and make it a quick clean kill. The rumour then expands to allege that they then gave the job to a hitman called Jimmy Moody who undertook it with the professionalism he was supposedly known for. Then there's the rumour that Freddie Mills was murdered by the Triads because of a debt and the closure of his restaurant. Then there's the rumour that he was killed because he was having a homosexual relationship with Ronnie Cray, and that Mills had been caught in a public toilet with another man and was about to be charged with gross indecency, and that his death was to cover up for Ronnie being gay and Reggie being bisexual, both of which were criminal offences in 1965. Those offences were only decriminalised in 1967. All very interesting. All very mysterious, but how does this link in with the Hammersmith nude murders? Well, the other rumour that has gained traction because of the word amongst the chirpy cockney chappies in the East End of London was that it was Freddie what done those murders, everybody knows that. Well that's the hearsay. Then there is the so far unsubstantiated claim that Mills and John De Rose had had a meeting at the United Grand Hall of England in Great Queen Street to discuss the murders and Freddie's part in them. The United Grand Hall of England is the headquarters of the Freemason movement in the UK. The allegation goes along the lines that both John DeRose and Freddie Mills were Masons and during the meeting covert recording had taken place during which Mills confessed to being the slaughterer of the six women. Author Michael Litchfield claims to have seen the transcript of Mills's confession but as far as I can tell, no one else has laid eyes on this document. This confession is supposed to have been shortly before Freddie's death and that John DeRose was pursuing Mungo Island to keep attention away from a fellow Mason. To me, it sounds like whimsy. Police later connected the first two murders of Elizabeth Figg and Gwyneth Reese to the later six. So wouldn't Freddie have actually confessed to eight? He was looking at life imprisonment and because of the bond of brotherhood, surely he would have willingly cleared his conscience before the great architect of the universe. So no, I don't buy into the Freddie Mills' Jack the Stripper theory. Too many holes, too many square pegs in triangular holes. Freddie Mills was killed because of the company he kept and the money he had borrowed. Hard men like to give hard punishments, and Freddie was, I believe, punished for poor business practice and nothing else with two suspects so far who is the next on the list. Rather surprisingly, the next suspect had already killed two people, two young girls, in 1921, and had served his time for those murders before being released and apparently turning up a couple of streets away from Mungo Island. Welcome to the sad and sordid story of Harold Jones. Born in 1906 in the Welsh town of Abitulary, Harold Jones was first tried at the age of 15 for the rape and murder of eight-year-old Frieda Burnett. She had been found in an outhouse behind the shop where he worked. She had been strangled. Frieda had gone missing during a Saturday morning errand to buy grip for the family chickens. As part of her father's search for the girl, who had failed to return home, he spoke with the shop assistant where she had been sent. That assistant was 15-year-old Harold Jones. Jones confirmed that Frida had been in the shop and had left after ten minutes. He was unable to give any further information as to where she had gone afterwards. The search intensified throughout the day, eventually being abandoned at midnight. The following morning, at first light, the search resumed. At half past seven in the morning, a local miner discovered what he thought was a pile of rags, but on closer examination it was discovered that it was the body of Frida Burnett. During the examination of her body, it was discovered that the poor girl had been subjected to a violent assault. Scotland Yard was, as always, called in, and before the week was out, Harold Jones had been arrested and was charged with her murder. Jones denied any knowledge of the crime. The subsequent investigation amassed a lot of circumstantial evidence against him, yet Jones steadfastly maintained his innocence. He was tried for the offence in June 1921. Witness testimony was presented that screams had been heard coming from the shed at the rear of the shop where Jones worked on the morning of her disappearance, a shed to which only Jones had a key at the time in question. Fader's handkerchief was found in the shed, as well as an axe which might have been used during the assault. On the 21st of June 1921, Harold Jones was acquitted of the murder and returned home to a celebratory welcome from the community. The joy of his release was short-lived as on the 8th of July, just 17 days after his return, 11-year-old Florrie Little disappeared. Once again, Abitallari was the scene of a major search for a missing girl. Jones once again helped the police with their search. This time, however, Jones would be unable to escape the law. When the police could find no trace of Florrie in the town, they began making house-to-house searches and eventually they came to the Joneses' house. When the search of the property began, Harold made a discreet exit and shortly afterwards, Florrie Little was discovered in their attic, having been brutally murdered. Finding his son no longer in the house, Harold's father went looking for him and soon the murderous child was in custody. Once again, Harold Jones made an appearance at the Monmouth Assizes, and this time he confessed to the murder. Because Jones was under the age of 16, he could not be tried as an adult and therefore sentenced to death, so the maximum sentence that could be handed down was detained at His Majesty's pleasure, a quaint term indicating that no fixed period was imposed, but that he was to be in prison until he was deemed fit for release. He was released from detention in 1941, and audaciously returned to Abba It is often reported that he had returned to the graves of his victims, a deeply disturbing pattern of behaviour, if true. Jones, it is alleged in some circles, joined the war effort by becoming a Royal Marine Commando, although no firm record can be found to support this. After the war, Jones moved to London, where, under a series of aliases, He worked in a variety of menial jobs and had, at one point, lived a few streets away from Mungo Island, according to author Neil Milkins. Because of the peripatetic nature of Jones's life and names, there are large gaps in his story. Neil Milkins has, with varying degrees of success, tried to link Jones with several murders, including that of Muriel Drinkwater. Muriel was a 12-year-old girl who had been beaten, raped and shot in the chest in woods not far from her home in 1946. Her mother had sent her on an errand to collect some shopping and had seen her daughter making her way back to the family farm on a path that meandered in and out of the woods. She had seen Muriel enter the woods, but not leave them again. When Muriel was discovered, she had suffered head injuries, rape and finally been shot twice in the chest. Unusually for a case of this age, Evidence was preserved, and in 2008, forensic scientists were able to obtain a DNA profile from her clothes. As is the nature of these cases, suspicion fell upon the last person who had seen Muriel alive. In this instance, it was a 13-year-old schoolboy called Hubert Hoys. He had passed her on the path from her family farm where he had been sent to buy eggs. The DNA exonerated Hubert completely, and one can only imagine the effect the accusation must have had on his life. Indeed, the description of the man police wanted to question about her murder was nothing like that of a 13-year-old boy. The description was that of a man in his 30s with thick, fluffy hair, wearing corduroy trousers and a brown sports jacket. To this day, no one has been charged with her murder, and it remains unsolved and although they now have a partial genetic profile, no matches have, so far, been identified. Police are hoping that a relative may well run foul of the law at some point in the future. So what's the connection to Jack the Stripper? Well, Neil Milkins claims that Jones was living in Fulham under the alias of Harry Stevens, and stayed in Fulham until 1962, when the public record for him becomes vague and he is untraceable once again. Milkins goes on to draw a parallel between the death of Bridget O'Hara, who disappeared on January 11th 1965, with Harold Jones's birthday, which is the same date. Milkins speculates that this was, rather distastefully, a birthday present to himself. Because of his past crimes and his alias of Harry, Milkins contends that this was the Harry Mungo Island mentioned in his suicide note it is somewhat, to my mind at least, a bit of a stretch. Although murderers don't have to stay within a single victim profile, Jones's interest in the murder of children is quite different from that of young, although mature, fully grown women who comprise the victims of the Hammersmith murderer. As revolting as Harold Jones undoubtedly was, I am, as yet, to be convinced of his guilt or even involvement in these crimes. So those are the three main suspects. But there are a number of others we need to consider as well. And there are some intriguing theories about the case that I shall look at next time on Still at Large. Still at Large is written, presented, produced and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. Some music was by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com, and some was created by me. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast, and is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur Media production.